Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. My conversation here with Esperanza Spaulding is the sort of thing we dream about. You're on an airplane, just buckled in, and you turn and realize, wow, I'll be sitting all the way to Chicago with the Mona Lisa or somebody. And you say, can we talk? And Esperanza Spaulding does talk with effervescence. about jazz and not jazz, about sounds that woke her up, Rimsky-Korsakov, Brazil, the poems of William Blake. She talks about the opera she's writing with Wayne Shorter, the Harvard students she's teaching, the music therapy she's studying, the love that holds the music together. A pair of She talks about mothers who let artistic children happen, not least by standing back. We're getting to know Esperanza Spaulding fast, riffing, improvising, trying to keep up, dropping names of other prodigies in their early 30s, her age, like Marcus Gilmore, the jazz drummer, and Corey Henry, the gospel keyboardist. We met Esperanza Spaulding of the four Grammys so far, not on an airplane, but in the lobby of the Berkeley Performance Center in Boston on the afternoon of an evening show. And the gab took over like a song. For old jazz heads like me, you are an incredible blessing because you have absorbed the whole tradition, but you're not trying to revive it so much as reinvent it and make it completely new. Yeah, okay. Is that fair? I mean, I walked in a different direction than jazz, I think, starting a few years ago. And these days, it doesn't quite sit right Hmm. to be identified as a jazz musician because of my love for the music and my love for the canon and the history and um, the modality of what we usually call jazz. So as a student, Still, as a student, ongoing. Yeah, I love the music, and I, and I use elements of the music for sure. But I wouldn't call the music that I've been doing the last few years jazz. Well, that's part of the beauty of it for me, <laughs> um, that you've liberated yourself. There's the canon, but you're something new, and time yeah. marches on. And there's a lot of extensions of the canon emerging, and that's different than what I'm doing. You just mentioned Marcus Gilmore and Corey Henry. Like, to me, those are people who are taking the stream, taking the Mm. river, taking the channel, and devising their own rivulets off of it and opening new ways with the music. I don't feel like I'm doing that. I can play the music. I can play with Joe Lovano and Jack and as a bass player, like, engage in that modality and offer to it and grow with it and et cetera. Thank you. 
you mentioned Marcus Gilmore, grandson of the tradition, Woo. Roy Haynes. Woo. And yet, I talked to his mother last week, and yeah. she said Marcus is in India, yeah. sort of sitting in, apprenticing with a tabla master, <laughs> Zakir Hussain. Wow. But that's reinventing too. Yeah, ultimately, I, Marcus, others, we're just responding to our lives, you know? And I don't feel beholden to any tradition. I feel like my responsibility with my gifts is to do the best I can do, however that expresses from moment to moment. Maybe your tongue's a ruddy seafloor Silent in its night Just shy of the constellations you guide by Whispers of light Beneath the surface of sound sayings Mirroring their time What you mean to say burns silent as starshine Clear each night above the noisy city in your mind Say what? The taste of pearl in the heart of your mind I remember somebody at iTunes saying, like, we are not going to label this alternative. You know, it's like you don't get the choice to name what you do. It's the right of somebody who is a managing director at a company to tell you what you are. That feels really... Maybe before we're done, we'll, we'll figure out what to call it. But yeah. there's always been a people from Duke Ellington on down who don't mm -hmm. like that word jazz, never did exactly. Yeah. He, he ended up with a definition he, that he liked. He said it's a music with an African foundation which came out of an American experience. Okay. And it's still coming out new, no? Yeah. I would say it's a pedagogy, you know? It's mm. a pedagogy and a, and a mode of commitment to that pedagogy. The way that it will translate once you've ingested the information mm. and started to practice the information, who can say? Pedagogy sounds right, uh, which reminds me of... I thought maybe I should call you Professor no. Spalding. No, <laughs> please don't. Uh, but you're a teacher through and through. It, it comes through in everything you do. Hmm. And we'll get to teaching. But let me just say, you had me with Little Fly. Oh. And uh, you <laughs> held on to me through exposure for sure. Ah, thank you. <laughs> should we talk about that range? <laughs> Little Fly, am not I a fly like thee, or art not thou? A man like me, William Blake, yeah. of all people. Yeah, totally. Little fly, thy summer's play. My thoughtless hand has brushed away. Yeah, I don't remember how that poem came into my life, but maybe it was a... Somebody gave me a book of William Blake poems with their, you know, the illustrations, the paintings that he mm. would make to frame his writing. And that poem is so profound. It's so beautiful. And of course, I mean, that's kind of what we were just talking about. You, you ingest from your surroundings, you know, whether that's jazz pedagogy or a book of poetry or an album or the way that your mother talks or the way your neighbor talks, or a dream you had, whatever, and you like freely interpolate it into what you have to say or what you want to offer and what feels good 
to do, of course. <laughs> um, and that's how that one came about. If thought is life and strength and breath, and the one of thought is death. Speak about teaching. You've taught here at Berkeley. You're teaching now at Harvard. You're teaching music. You're teaching performance. You're also talking music activism yeah. and something of social practice. And you're also studying, I know, music therapy. Yeah, to to be s to be studied. But yeah, I mean, the teaching piece feels like shared practice. You know, what are these little princelings and princesslings of Harvard? need in their life that you're exemplifying for them? I mean, that terminology, I think, is outdated to okay. describe the student body at Harvard. I see a very diverse community of young people. who Maybe I'm just lucky because I'm in the music department, and so there are already kids who are sort of passionate about the arts and community-based arts mm. and have an exploratory nature. But I interface with kids who are really aware of their privilege of being at that institution and they want to use it explicitly mm. to change the world for better and to help. And I say it's a shared practice space because they come in with so much. They come in with super songs, you know, they're really? brilliant musicians. So my work is to just offer them more tools and push them past what they think their current limit is, you know. <laughs> Is it okay to ask, and do kids ask you how you did it and what your mother had to do with it? I, I'd love to interview your mother. She should be Secretary of Education for kind of <laughs> Yeah, she's a wild one. People ask me how I did it. Did... Well, found your voice, found a conviction in your gift, found a vision of where you could take it. I'm also thinking of your mother just having the wit to basically set you on your busy little path by yourself and call it homeschooling. Yeah. We should all have that Maybe. Privilege. I don't know if that really serves all kids. I think it depends on the personality type of the child. Mm -hmm. I was a very <laughs> hyperactive, self-motivated critter. So my mom could trust that when she went away to work, I would read those chapters of the book and do those homework assignments and be doing something productive with myself. But that's not the case for everybody, so... Did she understand music activism on her own? I'm thinking of... You were speaking beautifully with Frank Gehry, the architect. Yeah. There he is drawing away, and you're making conversation with him. <laughs> and his drawings were being auctioned for the benefit of Vienna Star. Vienna Star, Hometown yeah. Portland. But you, you had a wonderful line with him. You said, Vienna Star is keeping alive the idea of thriving with minimal means. In other words, poor people. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. To speak of them as thriving, not... Of course. I mean, that's the mission. And that's a good check-in for those of us who enjoy a certain amount of privilege. You know, it's not like a handout to keep people surviving. Like, the mission is thriving and thriving, healthy, vibrant Not surviving, exactly. Yeah, and that, they're, they're wonderful. And that's the goal, right? <laughs> like, to use our surplus 
to use anyone's surplus to fold back into the fabric of our total community so we're all doing better, eh? with Esperanza Spalding. I am drawn to greatness, she says. Greatness from all over. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Lydon. This is Open Source. Esperanza Spalding, when she was still a student at Berkeley, a teenager from Portland, Oregon, was credited with the X factor of performance magic. She sings, she writes, she plays the bass that way. And she talks that way, too. Of her ancestors in music and her extended family in the arts today, she says, I'm into badass people doing badass stuff. I'd love you to talk about some of the musicians that are there in your mind all the time. I was the first one on my block to hear something of Abby Lincoln Woo! in your singing. Also, Elise Regina yeah. with uh, Jobim. Give us a little of the history in your, in your head. Of, of influences, people would say. Yeah. Probably the biggest seed that was planted in my like musical soul came from my time as a classical student, a student of classical music. Hmm. I remember finding or being gifted this Rimsky-Korsakov record of Scheherazade, and that was like the juiciest harmony I'd heard up to that point. Because oh. I was probably 10 or 11, and I was playing in the Chamber Music Society at Oregon, so it was really like friendly stuff, you know. It was like Mendelssohn and Mozart and some simplified Beethoven. Oh, but Beethoven's not that friendly harmonically. But, you know, we, we kind of had the watered-down version of everything. And I remember hearing that piece and the violin solo in it, and that's what kicked me into the next gear. That's what made me go like, oh my God, I'm miss like I'm missing something over here. <laughs> like if that's possible, they're not telling us the whole story. And that kicked me into gear to really, really, really practice the violin like I had never before. So I could get move along in advance within the the organization, within the music program. Then I first started trying to play jazz violin from this uh, Ella Fitzgerald Duke Ellington songbook that featured Stuff Smith. Yes. So that was the first like pivot point to learn that there was this thing called jazz. Then somebody gave me this tape and I heard Slam Stewart play. So that sound of the arco bass as a lead solo instrument got put in there. When I saw a bass for the first time, that sound was in the back of my brain, you know, mm. of that Slam Stewart thing. So I picked it up and tried to t translate violin technique to the bass. And as soon as I played that instrument, I knew that I wasn't going to play violin anymore. That was really clear. As soon as I picked up the bass, I knew that that's going to be what I played. 
then really other influences like vocalists and bass players that study all came much later. I was really <laughs> like an experiential student. I didn't check out a lot of stuff. I just played a lot and basically studied whatever my teachers or my colleagues said to study. You know, I didn't have a lot of hunger to learn about the music other than just experiencing it and listening to these few little records that I had. Now I realize that they're few compared to what most people <laughs> were studying early on, you know. You had magnificent teachers. Yeah, from the beginning. Like the women who, who ran the Chamber Music Society of Oregon were really stewed in this hardcore conservatory tradition of teaching. So they really demanded the best from us. They were amazing teachers, and all the people in the jazz community in Portland were stunning, too, so generous. This equation of time versus money didn't exist in the education that I, that I came from there. Yeah. You just could go to somebody's house and play and listen and ask, and then you go sit on their gig, and it was really this like open exchange of ideas and knowledge. So coming here was kind of a shock to like learn the exact equation of like, oh, how much access you have to a teacher. But then I met John Lockwood. Oh, and Jamie Haddad and Alain Malay, you know, and others whose names are escaping me right now. But John Lockwood definitely felt like that kind of ally that they're just committed in, to your development. I'm hesitant to pick out a few names because it's going to leave out so many names. No, but speak of the, the tribe going forward in a way <laughs> in so many different directions, including, I don't know, is Kamasi Washington in your gen and your spirit, would no, you say? But I really appreciate him. So grateful that he's here <laughs> in like a way he may not realize and we may not realize, but he's holding space. space so that that aesthetic live instrumental music can be seen as exciting and vibrant and sought after as like a rock band you know but Nicki Minaj is also in your in your world yeah I just like forward. greatness I'm into I'm into badass people doing badass stuff I can't help it I am the queen I'm everything she lacks bitch get on your kneecap I don't mean C cap get you checked i'll get you a free pack you bitches don't ball out you'll get your qb sacked i'm obj house break records like ink house i've been that bitch since ice cream with the sprank house tell them carry on they gonna miss me when i'm gone i'm gone i'm like drawn to greatness and she's undeniably a great artist i i just can't help it and there are some you know like a few of us in the band have like our like guilty pleasures of, of trap music and <laughs> that we probably wouldn't admit to our students that we listen to, but we can't help it. Like I'm drawn to greatness and you can't deny the excellence, you know. Well, that, that too is the tradition right? for me, Duke Ellington, but he wanted to play with people beyond category. That's it. He was always talking about individuals. That's he played it. with Coltrane. That's he it. He played with Mingus and Max Roach <laughs> in Money Jungle. I, yeah. That's... that's where you're coming from too, oh. no? 
Bless. I don't know. Let's, let's make some music. I don't know where I'm coming from, but I just put one foot in front of the other and hope there's some ground there. And there usually is. Sometimes it's pretty shaky, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing, and that is okay. I, I had to decide to be okay with that because I wouldn't be happy staying with what worked. I know that. I have a restless spirit, so yeah, I really don't have no idea what I'm doing, and I'm I try to be honest with my students about that too. Like, this is what I know so far, but it might not even work. This could all turn out to be a total disaster later, but this is what I know right now. And I look to people, honestly, embracing that aspect of myself is pretty new. And I feel emboldened to just call it out and to claim it, thanks to people like Wayne, who really uh, lives by that philosophy and he creates by that philosophy. And he's explicitly been like an ally and an encourager mm. to me to allow space for that mode of being in the creative arts. Where else can you do that? Really? You can't do it in brain surgery. So it almost feels like if you're somebody who can stomach it, it almost feels like that's what I can do for the art, for art, <laughs> for music, mm. is just, you know, leap out and fly. Before I forget, who do you consult with on the orchestration of your work and then the arrangement of it? Is, are those your ideas of, you know, well, a trio or a strings oh, 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 oh. or the instruments that are going to be involved and then the combined sound? You cover a terrific range. I always know when the concept comes down what the instrumentation is going to be. It's, mm. it's never a question of, like, how do we express this idea? The idea usually emerges in tandem with like an ensemble or a sound of Lucky an ensemble. <laughs> now, from here, I really want to work with what the equivalent of an editor to a writer would be for mm. a musician. And I'm not exactly sure what that looks like yet. I don't know if it's your traditional producer. I don't know what it is. But when I listen back to the records... <laughs> When I can handle that, when I listen back to the records, I think like, damn, I wish I would have had like another great mind just sort of as an objective eye and ear kind of guiding and helping me see and hear things that I that I didn't. So interesting. Who, who could do it for you? I don't know yet. I mean, I've been really fortunate to spend time with a lot of writers in the last couple of years and I keep hearing about this dynamic of the editor and the writer, the editor, the novelist, the editor. And mm. I think, you know, I think it's time for that. And with uh, Matthew Stevens and Justin, who, who've played in the last three projects, we've talked a lot about that, too, of just <laughs> it takes time to, to get to that place if you're not used to it, you know? Is this Miles looking for Gil Evans or something? I mean... Maybe. Or Strayhorn looking for Ellington. I don't maybe. know. I don't know, but yeah. Yeah. I'd love to just mention some songs. Dancing the Animal. So have you prayed to your phone today? Atoning for all ignorance we
That was the first thing pointing toward a different mission in music, which to like bring the listener in their experience of something, a physical experience of something. And it used to be three voices and just bass and drums and saxophone. <laughs> and then it evolved for this, for the spells. Black Gold. That whole project was sort of a chaotic process, Radio Music Society. <laughs> I remember a lot of stress around getting those songs done and arranged and recorded. But I do remember being in my living room in New Jersey and just coming up with that. Hold your head as high as you can, high enough to see who you are, little man. Life sometimes is cold and cruel, maybe no one else will tell you, so remember that you are black gold, black gold. You are black gold. Now maybe no one else has ever told you so. Yeah, I just, I, I needed that. You know, I needed that song, and I was thinking about my brothers. They needed that. I wish they would have had, like, the equivalent of that song in, like, presence and, and guidance and mentorship growing up, you know. Sometimes it comes out of your own self-soothing. <laughs> Exposure. You feel particularly in that sort of jazz scene with Robert Glasper and others, and you're sort of rehearsing, it seems like, and you say, now we go to the A thing. Um, or no, let's try the D thing or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's the most wonderful experience on YouTube of just sort of being in a rehearsal, a live <laughs> rehearsal, and the guy's looking, rolling their eyes a little bit, but... Uh, yeah, yeah. I had to do exposure because I needed to expose myself. I needed to expose who I actually am hmm. as an artist. I felt like a lot of layers and signifiers that have nothing to do with, with what I actually do have kind of stuck to me, you know, like little burrs. Hmm. And I wanted to get into an environment where there was no room for any editing, filtering, or you know, super narratives to get imposed onto what the actual craft is. And the craft is spontaneous creativity and expression. And like, that's the truth. That's what, that's my truth. That's what I want to do and talk about and sing about and play about. Now we stay here and go to the Exposure was almost like if we're in this thing together mm. and like you feel the risk and I feel the risk, I'll do my best work and then you all can see who I actually am. And if you want to stick around for what comes after, like you'll know what it is. Like I, it was kind of like a clarifier and like a coming of age and all these things at once. Yeah. You look so happy in it. Yeah, I if was I really say. happy. That's totally my element. That's totally my element. Change the way I see my life. Why would I? Why would I? Emily. Yeah. The Emily in you 
in your name, in your in your subterranean spirit. <laughs> That's a good way to put that. Are you in touch with Emily these days? Mm, no, it feels like um, that project was an opening, and Emily was the tool to open up some sounds. Uh, it was really clear when I would check in with Emily about what she wanted, that she wanted to move. So it's like this character came that I could inhabit to explore this sound and explore this way. And once the way was open, it's like, so dissipated. She's, she dissipated. Um, D plus evolution in the title of the album. Yeah. Meaning something about tides coming in, going out, creative energies, redirecting themselves or something. Yeah, it's, I mean, D plus evolution is meant to imply the u unity of the processes of devolution and evolution. And the very process of evolution means the de-evolution or the deconstruction of whatever was there before. It's, it's no longer uh, moving toward what the next thing is. And so with Emily, that was really it. It's like breaking apart some things to make space for what was emerging. And mm. I use the allegory of a volcano a lot, <laughs> of opening a channel, you know, and also how what at first can feel <laughs> literally abrasive, you know, or, mm. or too much or too intense. Once it's out and it cools, like that is the foundation for new territory, for new land, and all the new things that can grow on that brand new land. Look at Hawaii. So D plus evolution doesn't sound as awful as creative destruction yeah, like a war. Because it's not. I mean and, and I don't I never use the word destruction. Did you know that cliche, creative destruction? No. The great gift of capitalism will Oh no, I didn't know that. I always think of the uh, immortal jellyfish. Do you know about this? It's not actually a jellyfish, but it looks kind of like a jellyfish. So this is a sea creature that was discovered about 10 years ago by this Japanese marine biologist. And when it's been mortally wounded, like you could cut it up into 50 pieces in, the, in its little tank. And what it does is it just deconstructs itself into this blob of disattached cells and it recollects and condenses back to its pupae stage and then it just grows again into an adult. And it can do this cycle indefinitely. I think of that, you know, and I wonder, just to like tease out the allegory, if it takes with it what it learned from its last iteration, you know, of being a complete whole. Because, I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I feel like all the time, you know, my sense of what is and what is sturdy and what I am is always being shaken and picked apart and pieces of it are falling off and new pieces are coming in. And that feels like a really integral process of growth. You know, your skin is sloughing off all the time. You're constantly in a state of sort of disassembling to reassemble and renew. And that's what I mean by D plus evolution. Coming up with Esperanza Spalding, Unspoken messages of love and resistance between the lines of the music. This is Open Source. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. 
we're riffing with the shooting star, singer-songwriter Esperanza Spalding. That's totally my element she was just saying about the people who share her taste in music and in life. That takes me back to Marcus Gilmore and his mother, whom I've known for a long time. She's such a and love. Roy and Roy's brother Michael yeah, yeah. baptized me. Oh my um, gosh! Yeah, yeah, yeah. This gets serious. But anyway, <laughs> Leslie Haynes, Marcus's mother, said, that's what I can't get over is that they rise above fear, these kids. <laughs> she also said, I don't suppose that Esperanza's mother pushed her because those kids don't want to be pushed. And I didn't push Marcus. Mm -hmm. He found his own way. Mm -hmm. And he found it to the point where he could play all of Roy's solos. But then he went off yeah. on his own. This is a kind of miracle. Yeah. And it's very stirring. Wow. That's really sweet. Yeah. I mean, my mom pushed me in other ways. First of all, she loved music and she knew how to read music and how to write music, but it never felt like, you know, she knew so much that she was trying to direct me on what to do with it. Hmm. It was just like food will be on the table and there'll be a roof over your head and there'll be somebody there who's got your back if there's an emergency or if you're in trouble, or if you need to talk about something. So it's like you're held, but you're not uh, limited, you know, and also... Hmm. Maybe like a lot of young people, music was an escape. You know, my home life was really chaotic. It was not like a fun place to be. Mm. Also, I think my mom recognized that all that energy and all that kind of chaos had to go somewhere. It needed to be harnessed. And I think she was really actually relieved that I found this kind of all-consuming passion. Mm. And I wasn't wilding around in the neighborhood and I wasn't, you know, taking out on myself or on others, just the stuff that we were going through, you know. And I don't know much about <laughs> many people's personal lives, but I do know that for somebody like me, that kind of uh, restlessness and using the music as a place to sort of process and be carries on, you know, through my life. It, it, it didn't stay in my youth. I guess it, it comes with this sort of comforting quality that you know however wild or difficult or bad your life at any moment or what you see in the world around you or what's even happening in the music is, like it will transform through applied effort. That's, that's the promise of art. That's the promise of music. And you don't get a promise like that almost anywhere else in this world, you know? So you, you always have this thing with you affirming that, yes, with your life and your commitment, things will get better, you know? Mm. Esperanza, you're a blessed child, I gotta say. <laughs> what, what, how not to say it. Um, I love these little hints of Esperanza, the teacher. I've seen you quoted saying, everybody should read more and everybody should think more than they read. <laughs> uh, so true. Okay. When, when did you discover that? And I don't, and I don't want to know what you read. <laughs> oh my God, I don't know. I just sometimes, ugh say whatever. I don't know what that was about. I do think that that's true. I mean, it's like spending time with strangers. And it's really a generous act, reading somebody else's offering to the world, because you don't get to put in what you think or say your piece. It's, it's receptive, you know, it's a receptive practice reading. And then of course, I mean, I probably inherited this from my mother. I'm always writing in the margins, you know, Amen. like, wait, well, based on what? You know, like, well, who gave that definition? You know, I'm always, <laughs> <laughs> I'm always writing my own little dialogue 
my, my half of the dialogue in the margin of the book. But That's yeah. going to make it infinitely more valuable you know, down the road. <laughs> oh. Um, yeah. There are so many ways looking at this world. Yeah, Oof. you ever hear Emerson's line that you think you're reading the book, but the book is also reading you? Well, wow. You know what that makes me think of? That makes me think of this great Wayne Shorter quote. I have to share it. <laughs> he talks a lot about value creation as the creative practice of life. That whatever's happening, wherever you are, whatever you're feeling, whatever you're doing, you can always be practicing creating value. Hmm. Because if you're not practicing that, what's practicing you? <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's another great quote back at you. <laughs> Eleanor Jaquette who played, of course, in Bama Hampton's band hmm. back in the day. He got going in a conversation one time about the Basie Band rhythm section, and he hmm. said, you know, in all of time, past, future, there will never be a rhythm section like the Basie Band. Walter Page, Freddie Green on guitar, Joe Jones on drums, and of course, Basie on the piano. And I said, how do we explain that? And he said, well, first you have to understand it's a conversation. Hmm. And I said, if only we knew what they were talking about. And he said, no, we know exactly what they were talking about. <laughs> we do? Yes, it was love. Oh. It was love, love of this moment, love of this music, love of each other, wow. love of the opportunity to, to, to go to the brink and, and keep going. Listen. And I've never forgotten that. And yeah. it seems to me in the best improvised music, you feel that. Yeah, totally. Totally. It makes me think of the Wayne Quartet. I mean, yes. of such a profound expose of love, the expression of love in real time, and the responsive quality of love in action. I think for a lot of musicians, that might be the only place that they found a language that's permissible. Exactly. What is your pleasure in reading in reading books? When you say everybody should read. Yeah. Well, think. What are your favorites? More than you read. Oh, well, all time, all the time is James Baldwin. I mean, just no matter where I am or what I'm doing, I pick up. A James Baldwin book, and I'm just opened. You know, I think that happens with some of the best music. You realize that you could never do that, yet it feels like it came from you. It's like you just identify with every sentence. It's like he went into the depths of your soul and could bring up and expose for you what you couldn't say for yourself. So deep. And he was listening to music all the time he wrote. Did you know I that? I mean, I didn't know that. No. Yeah. That's beautiful. I didn't know that. He loved gospel music. He loved Ray Charles. He was listening to Oh Happy Day wow. most of his writing day. Wow. Brazilian music. Okay. Finds its way into your repertoire, but also your spirit. Yeah. And, of course, we're all Jobim fans. And even more so, in a way, Joao Gilberto, the singer. <gasps> There's something of him... I hear in your voice, speak about Thank it. You. How did that come into your life so, uh, so naturally? When I was in high school, some ensemble of high-level, high school-aged ballerinas came into my high school and did a dance presentation to the girl from Ipanema. 
and I had never heard any of that music before. And I was obviously amazed dancing, but more importantly, I was like, what is this music? I have to get this music. And I think that was like the entry point into, into that canon, I guess. Then in college, I met a lot of Brazilian musicians and a lot of people who knew about Brazilian music and they were feeding me a steady diet of, you know, Milton Nascimento and Azimuth and Jobim, of course, and Elise Regina and Hermeto Pascual, which that, again, that was like the Rimsky Korsakov at 10. It was like, whoa, this is, okay, okay, what have I been missing? Like, what is this path, you know? And a language from the start that was just made to be put to music. I mean, Sounds yeah. Sounds so gorgeous in the Yeah, it the really human does. Voice. It really does. But also you have this generation of poets, profound poets who knew how to work that language. You know, it's not a coincidence that when we hear the lyrics, they're just so nourishing to the ear. You know, these are these are geniuses. I mean, Catano Veloso and Chico Buarque and Milton and Vinicius de Moraes, you know, they're master poets. They're using the language to make it do the best that it can do, you know. Notes and Tones by a mm -hmm. drummer, bebop drummer Arthur Taylor, recorded with the best. And in the late 60s, early 70s, he put together maybe 30 interviews with the reigning giants, mostly when they came to Europe, because he was mm -hmm. exiled in Europe for a while. But Miles, Thelonious Monk, Errol Garner, Betty Carter, the best. And two things that come out of that book, and you, you can test me, but one, this feeling in that generation that they had seen God in the form of Charlie Parker. They were almost like gospel writers recalling, did you remember this? Did you, mm. were you touched by that? But the second thing was a certain social anger. Uh -huh. They didn't own their own music. They weren't managing their own mm -hmm. music. They were desperately worried about the sort of slowing of the civil rights movement in the United States. Mm. There was a kind of black consciousness that's recorded no place else that I know mm. of. And it makes me wonder, in today's music, 50 years from now, what will we realize that they were saying between the lines that we didn't <laughs> hear? <laughs> Probably the same kind of things that musicians talk about with each other today. There are a lot of similar frustrations around lack of diversity and inclusion at the levels of music business where decisions are really being made on behalf of the public, not just on behalf of artists but how artists are portrayed, who is sold, who is given the most marketing dollars, yes. and who controls the narrative of what fits in the allotted umbrella terms and, uh, and umbrella genres. It makes me think of, um, you know, you live in a community and you know toxic waste from a factory nearby is hurting your community. But very few of you will have 
the skills to articulate exactly what is happening and how in a way that somebody from that industry would understand. So for a lot of people in that community, let's say this hypothetical community, there's this ongoing seething angst. I think for a lot of musicians, that's, that's the feeling too. You know, we're topically aware of a lot of patterning mm. that leads to inequity and leads to oppression and leads to outright suffering of our neighbors and fellow citizens. And unless you've really studied political science or history, it feels like you can't quite articulate what it is that you're asking for, what it is that went wrong. And very few musicians, like maybe Killer Mike, or I'm trying to think of, I mean, Vijay Iyer is one of them, Jason Moran for sure. Very few people really are kind of stewed and studied in the science of it, the political science of what we perceive to be happening. And I think for the rest of us, we just try to capture our perception of what's going on and offer it back, you know. And that that is not a common theme in jazz journalism or in popular music journalism, but I think that's the norm. Like from all the people I know in music, like everybody's trying to say something, you know, because we're worried, <laughs> you know. Yeah. The point being that the music is a narrative of something and mm -hmm. it's never defined, especially in jazz journalism. Yeah, and that's, sure. I guess, what I wonder, who's going to distill that for us? It makes me think of something the original people said in this book called Mutant Message Down Under, that human beings are meant to communicate through something they call mind talk, <laughs> that the voice is only for praying and singing. And the piece of that that I, I want to draw from right now is that much of what we really understand is communicated non-verbally. And I think that is the luxury of the arts, that it doesn't necessarily require a translation. It's because it's the language of experience and heart to heart. The vibrations came from my life and they enter your life. And I, I think that is a great benefit of instrumental music is that it gives the listener a chance to process free from language um, a deep understanding that's been offered to them from another person. And sometimes it can feel abstracted, you know, but I think at some level we, we do understand what the musician is trying to say or is giving us. Even if we can't translate it back out of our system, I think we understand it when it comes into the system. And I do think that we believe what we hear in music you know, implicitly because it actually happened to us. We, we, it came into our body and we heard it. And I think that the stories that we tell and activate through music are really powerful because they take on like the immensity of reality in our brain when they get in there. And that's a lot of what great musicians are trying to do, are trying to get us acclimated to ideas beyond the reality that we know now. I mean, think of Sun Ra or Parliament, you know? Basically stating as fact something that the rest of the world is clearly saying is not. But now we have to defer to them and say, yeah, that's who they were. That's right. That's the artist is telling the truth, you know. <laughs>
have to share this quote because it's so beautiful. It just happened in passing with a writer friend of mine, Azar Nafisi. We were having lunch. Oh, she's... Oh. Anyway, um, we were having lunch in D.C. And, uh, you know, as soon as she starts talking about the role of art and social transformation, she gets, like, really, really, like, animated and almost short of breath. She gets this so This is Lolita excited. in Tehran. Yes, 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 yes. So she said, she said, but I mean, you know, that's the role of the arts and of writing. It holds reality accountable. Mm. <laughs> mm. I love that. Even in the terms of what reality doesn't dare show as real yet, you know, that's what the arts can push us past. <laughs> Trust thy ears. Is that a quote? No, we just made that up. I like that. Trust thy ears. True. Emerson said, "Trust thyself." Yeah. We say, "Trust thy Trust selfie." Thyself. But trust thy ears. Trust thy selfie. Is that what you said? <laughs> it is astonishing and utterly wonderful Bless to you. meet the wonder world of Esperanza Spalding. Thank you. Thank You've you. You've been incredibly generous with us. Thank You've been generous listening to all my music. I mean, I'm spoiled now. I'm going to be like... In the lobby of the Berkeley Performance Center, <laughs> Esperanza Spalding. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Our show is produced by Connor Gillies, Rebecca Panotka, the artist Susan Coyne, and the engineer George Hicks. Mary McGrath is our executive producer. I'm Christopher Leiden. Join us next time. Join us every time on Open Source. <laughs>